All right. If you have your Bible, please open to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is about 75% of the way through your Bible, and we're going to read in chapter 17, picking up in verse 14. It's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read all the way through 20. This is the word of the Lord. When they came to the crowd, that is Jesus and three of his disciples, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, Thank you for your word for us this morning. Thank you for your presence here among us. We have a few things to ask for God. We would like you to speak to us. Lord, please speak to us through your word. Speak to us through its proclamation. And speak straight to our hearts by your spirit. In fact, God, my personal request is that you would move me aside, that you would bind my lips and my tongue, that no false word might pass, but that, that it would be you speaking directly to each heart because you know where each heart is at and what they need. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. Amen. You know those skills that require going through lots and lots of failure before you can kind of come to a place of skill mastery or success. You know what I'm talking about? Like it requires a lot of devotion to the technique and the individual steps, the way that each part of it works together to finally get through lots of failure until you finally achieve success. Well, I gotta be honest with you guys. I historically have been the type of person who does not have a lot of perseverance through those failures to get to that final taste of success or skill mastery. Now, I can persevere through a lot of physical pain to get to success. Uh, I can run for a really long time in one direction and just subject my body to lots and lots of pain to, to achieve a goal, but but. Trudging through countless experiences of failure is not something I have historically been able to persevere through. 
Now, uh, some of you, maybe you're just built different and you're not like me. Maybe you have the, the Thomas Edison gene. What's that story about Thomas Edison where it was, pardon my history, but it was either like a 1,000 or 10,000 failed attempts at making a light bulb before he finally made one that worked? Have you heard this story? And somebody asked him, how did you persevere through all these failures to finally get to a success? And he said, I didn't fail. I just found... 10,000 ways how to not make a light bulb. Some of you are like, Zach, just turn your failure into fuel. Let it, let it drive you forward. And, and I'm just here to tell you that that's not the way that I work. Uh, I struggle to persevere through failure. Uh, one time I was invited to go water skiing. Uh, this is a, a confession. And I um, was invited to go water skiing. I'd never water skied before. Uh, and I was ready to go. I was sitting on the dock, had my skis on. I got the rope. Everyone else made it look easy, and I'm pretty coordinated generally, so I thought this will be no problem. So I'm sitting on the dock. I'm ready to go, and the boat accelerates, and I, in about uh, 0.5 seconds, I went from sitting on the dock to laying on my face in the water. <laughs> but, you know, everybody falls on their first time, right? So I shook it off. I got up. My friends are watching, so I I can't disappoint. I I get back on the dock. I'm ready to go. And you know the story. (laughs) On my face, instantly. This happened three times in a row. And after the third failure to learn how to water ski, I was done water skiing for the rest of my life. (laughs) I am not really historically the type of person to persevere through lots of failure and acquisition of a skill. But let me be real with you for a second. I can't think of a more challenging arena to pursue skill mastery or to pursue success than being a follower of Jesus. I get a witness. Following Jesus is going to lead you through countless experiences of feeling like a failure because following Jesus in this broken, sinful world is hard. And friends, if you are like me and you struggle to persevere through experiences of failure in your pursuit of success, here's the deal. It's okay if I never water ski again. The stakes are not that high. Some of you are like, no, you don't understand. Water skiing is awesome. And I'm sure you're right. But if I never water ski for the rest of my life, I'll be okay. But we cannot afford to give up in the experience of failure in our pursuit of becoming like and living like Jesus in the world. The stakes are too high. Now, here's the good news. We have an awesome case study in the Gospels for what it looks like to be experiencing consistent failure in your attempts to follow Jesus, right? The, The disciples have this classic thing where every page, it seems like, they're failing in a new way. It's like Jesus preaches a sermon, and the sermon just goes, right over their heads and they they meet with Jesus to the side and they're like hey what in the world were you talking about when you were preaching to the crowds or maybe they have an opportunity to to 
participate in feeding the 5,000, and Jesus is like, here, you go ahead and, and feed the people, and they're like, how are we going to do that? We only have five loaves and two fish, and it's not like we have God sitting here with us to help us, and they, they fail, and then like two or three days later, they get another opportunity to feed 4,000, like the exact same experience, and Jesus is like, how about you give them something to eat, and they're like, where in the world are we going to find the food, right? The, the disciples consistently fail in their attempts to be a successful follower of Jesus. Now, just so we're all on the same page here, let's look in Matthew's gospel at what the calling of the disciples is. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus calls the disciples to follow him, and he'll make them fishers of men. But then in Matthew chapter 10, uh, Jesus expands and gives them a higher calling. He gives them a higher calling. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And then in verses 7 and 8, he expands on the higher calling. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received Freely give. Now, this higher calling of being a disciple of Jesus, like, okay, drive out demons, maybe. All right, heal the sick, maybe. I mean, I've heard of people doing that. Raise the dead, I'm sorry, like, you're going to experience failure as you're trying to live into your higher calling that Jesus has called you to. This description of this calling that he gave the 12 disciples. What is it, who, who does it sound like? Who lived in that way? Jesus. The book of 1 John, the, the author describes the higher calling of the disciple in this way. He says, in this world, we, the church, are like Jesus. The higher calling that, that the 12 received and that you and I have received is to be like Jesus in the world. And as we try to be like the greatest person who's ever lived, we're going to struggle. It's important to recognize that. And the disciples give us a great case study. Additionally, Jesus gives us a great case study for how he responds when the disciples experience failure. Jesus models for us something that is absolutely critical to our ability to persevere through these persistent experiences of failure. It's encouragement. That's a nice word, isn't it? Encouragement. Jesus consistently encourages the disciples every time that they experience a failure and encourages them to keep going. And this is something that we all need in our experience of following Jesus. If we're going to persist through struggle and learning to follow Jesus, we need to be encouraged. And Jesus models encouragement for us here in Matthew chapter 17. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit, but I'll just tell you up front. Jesus models encouragement that has three distinct characteristics that we're going to point out together. And the first of those characteristics comes in verse 17, but, but just a recap of where we are. So remember, the disciples were told uh, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. One of the things they were told is cast out demons. And they come to this 
boy whose dad brings him to the disciples and says, my son needs help. There's a demon that's afflicting him, oppressing him, and it's trying to kill him. It throws him into the fire. It throws him into the water. It's out to get my son, and we need help. We don't have anywhere else to turn. And the disciples try to heal the boy, and they fail. And so Jesus comes down with three of his disciples from an experience on the mountain, uh, and he, he walks into the crowd where the rest of the disciples were and where this family is, uh, and the, the man approaches Jesus, and he says, my son is having these problems, and I came to your disciples for help, and they couldn't do it. Please, Lord, have mercy on my son. And here's Jesus' first part of his response in verse 17, and it's the contained inside is the first tenet of Christ-like encouragement. This is his encouragement. He says, "You unbelieving and perverse generation." Okay, just checking if y'all were listening. You unbelieving and perverse generation. That doesn't sound like encouragement. I thought encouragement's supposed to be like positive and nice. And if you think that, you're right. Like encouragement is generally a, a positive and nice way to speak to someone. Um, so, but don't worry, because it, it gets worse. Um, Jesus continues, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Uh, this moment reminds me, I, I think it's the end of Avengers Age of Ultron. It's, it's one of the Avengers movies. There's a post credit scene. Some of you know where I'm going already. Thanos, uh, after all his like minions fail to defeat the Avengers, says one of the most iconic lines in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, fine, I'll do it myself. Right? Jesus says, bring the boy here to me. And by the way, for the record, I am not comparing Jesus and Thanos as being similar, but just struck in this way by this moment. Jesus says, bring the boy here to me. Now, there's two things that we're going to point out from this verse, um, and together they, they give us some light on the first part of Christ-like encouragement. The first thing we're going to highlight is the second half where Jesus says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? A little bit of backstory on where we are in, in Jesus' experience with the disciples. So he calls the disciples, he engages in a three-year ministry with them where he gives them a higher calling to go and be Jesus in the world. And where this is heading is Jesus is going to die, he's going to be resurrected to life, and he's going to ascend to heaven. After that ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit, and now the physical presence of Jesus in the world is manifest through the disciples. Okay, through you and me. This is where this is heading. But we have a critical turning point in Jesus' life just a few verses before this encounter uh, with the man and his son. In chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus has this turning point moment in his ministry. Very likely he's about 32 years old and just nearing the final stretches of his, his time here on earth in a physical body. It says this, From that time on, from this turning point moment on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, 
and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Did you catch that at, at the beginning from that time on? There's this turning point moment in Jesus' life where for the rest of his time with his disciples, he is focused single-mindedly on achieving his goal of death, excruciating death on a cross. And you remember that after he dies, resurrects, and ascends, and sends the Holy Spirit, his work is done in a sense. That, that brings a close to the chapter. Now the, the people of God, the disciples, are Jesus in the world, as empowered by Jesus in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is single-mindedly focused on achieving this goal, and here he is confronted with a roadblock in that process, and he says, how much longer shall I stay here? I'm just trying to die for you guys. Jesus is lamenting that things aren't the way they're supposed to be yet. He's longing, and equally as much as he's longing for the end of the chapter, he's dreading the end of the chapter because it's going to be a lot of suffering that he goes through. Now, from the first half of this verse, uh, let's unpack it a little bit. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, uh, one thing to note, you know there are those words in the English language that we don't use that frequently in our day-to-day -day life, and they, they sort of lose a specific meaning. You know words where you kind of generally know what they mean, maybe you could even use it in a sentence, but if someone asks you to, to tell them the definition as listed in the dictionary, you might struggle to offer that definition. Does that make sense? There are words that you kind of know the, the meaning, but the definition has escaped. The, the word perverse is one of those words. In our modern context, the word perverse reminds us of a pretty yucky word, pervert, right? And, and this is one of the worst insults, I think, that, that you can give someone. It, it's very, very icky to call someone a pervert. Um, the word perverse, in its actual definition, means distorted, or not the way it's supposed to be. You have a, an ideal version of how something was intended to be, and to pervert that is to make it not the way it's supposed to be. So in its original use, it doesn't have the same icky connotations that we carry in our culture today. The, the second thing to note from the beginning of this verse is that in our English Bibles in front of us, the, the phrase from Jesus starts with the word you. You unbelieving and perverse generation. The word you sounds like an accusation. But if we read the original language it was written in, and maybe some of your Bible translations got this a little more close to the original text, that if we read the original language, it doesn't have the word you at all. It starts with the word oh. Jesus says, oh generation unbelieving and not the way you're supposed to be. Oh, generation, unbelieving and not the way you're supposed to be. How much longer until my work is finished? Jesus isn't levying an accusation against the disciples. He is lamenting that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. 
His disciples, as soon as his work is finished, are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And in this moment, they were unable to do that. And Jesus is lamenting, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. How much longer? This poor boy and his family are so deeply impacted by this evil spirit. And Jesus is lamenting, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And so here's the first tenet of Christ-like encouragement from Matthew 17. Jesus recognizes the pain of their reality. Jesus doesn't hide from the pain of their reality. He recognizes the pain of their reality, and he sits with them in that. Now, we have a stereotype in our culture where you know, a, a typically the stereotype is that the wife will come to the husband and she'll tell him all these things that are going wrong in her world and he'll jump in and start trying to fix what's wrong in her world and she'll say, I don't want you to fix it, I just want you to listen, right? Now, don't elbow your spouse right now. Um, this, by the way, goes in every direction, in every kind of relationship, friend to friend, uh, husband to wife, wife to husband. Sometimes we just need someone to sit with us and recognize that things in our world are not right, and that is hard. And that's the first way that Jesus models encouragement in this passage. He recognizes that things are not right, and that is hard. The second and third ways that Jesus models encouragement come to us at the end of this passage in verse 20. The disciples come to Jesus in private, and they ask him, why couldn't we drive it out? And uh, uh, just a quick freebie, this isn't one of the three ways, but I think it's worth mentioning that the disciples were confident enough in their position with Jesus, in the love that Jesus had for them, that even after there was kind of some some language from Jesus that might feel like a rebuke, they come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can you help us out? What went wrong? They were confident enough that that they didn't lose their job because they messed up. They they weren't going to be cast out of Jesus' favor. Jesus had journeyed with them, building trust for years, and this is old hat for the disciples. They're used to getting feedback from Jesus on what went wrong and trying to correct going forward. So That's just a freebie. They ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies with the second tenet of Christ-like encouragement. He says, because you have so little faith. Again, you might be thinking, this doesn't sound very encouraging. When is this going to get encouraging? Here's what Jesus is modeling here in this statement. Jesus is willing to tell his disciples the truth, even when it's a truth that they might not want to hear. This is a critical component of encouragement, and I'll give you a personal example to explain why. I've shared this story in sermons in the past, so I'm not going to go deep into the details. Uh, If you're curious and you haven't heard it before, I'd be happy to share them in a conversation. But I used to be a small group leader for a young adult ministry in spring. And one day, I made maybe the pinnacle error that you can make as a small group leader. I spoke to a member of my small group who was uh, being courageous enough to speak up and contribute 
to our conversation in a way that was unkind and unloving and, and that kind of it was like shame-inducing in front of the group. Grave, grave mistake. And this just so happened to be the one time per quarter that the pastor of the young adults ministry was visiting my small group. So he got to witness the whole thing, which was awesome. And the next day, we were debriefing what happened. And he was willing to tell me the truth, even though it was the truth that I might not want to hear. He said to me, Zach, the way you spoke to this person in your group was unkind and unloving, and it's not right. Now, even though that kind of hurt a little bit to hear, let's, let's walk this out if he hadn't said something. If he hadn't said something, I mean, I knew what I did. And, and if he hadn't addressed it with me, maybe I would have just continued going along, leading as a small group leader in a constant state of questioning whether I was worthy to keep doing the job. You know, if it hadn't been addressed, I might have just gone around wondering, oh man, I, like, he, is he going to pull me from this position at some point? I've really messed up here. But the fact that he was willing to tell me the truth, even though it was a truth that I might not have wanted to hear, gave me the freedom to move forward. Jesus doesn't hide from the pain of their present reality, and he's willing to tell them the truth, even if it's a truth that they might not want to hear. The third thing that Jesus does to encourage his disciples is this. After he says, you couldn't drive it out because you have so little faith, he says, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can, you can's a great encouraging phrase, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Now, Jesus and his disciples, if we back up some verses, they just came down off of what the text calls a high mountain, not just a big hill, a high mountain. They walk down, they're encountering the crowd at the base of the mountain. So Jesus is literally saying, you can say to this mountain right here, move from here to there and it will move. And then Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. And here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is telling his disciples the truth, even when it's a truth that they might not be willing to believe. Jesus is telling his disciples the truth, even when it's a truth that they might not be willing to believe. Jesus is saying, don't you dare begin to think that this is all that you're capable of. You are capable of so much more than this. And if we're honest, it might actually be harder to receive that kind of truth than the truth that we might not want to hear. I mean, think about it. If, if, if someone says, you can speak to this mountain if you have just a little bit of faith and it will obey you, like, we're going to think, okay, but what does that mean if it doesn't work, right? What does that mean if it doesn't work? At least when someone tells you the truth that you don't want to hear and then continues with you in, in encouraging and loving relationship, you can move forward. But, but the truth that you might not be willing to believe, that's, that's honestly a little tougher to receive, I think. Everyone's different, but I think that's tough to receive. But Jesus models this threefold encouragement that he sits with people when the world is not right, that he tells them the truth even when it's a truth they might not want to hear, and he tells them the truth even when it's a truth that they might not be yet willing to believe. And this sort of encouragement is what you and I need as we seek to follow Jesus and we experience failure and struggle. 
I can't think of anything harder than following Jesus perfectly, okay? I just can't. And we need, if we're going to persevere through these struggles and experiences of failure, we need this kind of encouragement. And friends, we get that from one another. At Covenant, we're reinvesting and re-engaging in our small group's ministry. Uh, at Covenant, we are a, a church. We want to move into being, yet again, a church of small groups. I think that Christians gathering in a small group with other Christians is maybe the most important thing that the church does. Okay, Sunday worship is important, missions are important, but if you don't have a space where you are known and you know others and you can encourage and be encouraged when you experience failure, then you'll just peter out in your faith eventually, right? Missions are supported by small groups. Worship is supported by small groups. Gathering in small groups of believers is, in my opinion, the most important thing that the church does. And one of our commitments as a church to a, a core value of small groups at Covenant is to create an encouraging environment. If you come to uh, my small group, I, I can make, uh, I, I'm in a small group and I can make a personal commitment to you. If you are a member of a small group with me, this is my personal commitment to you. I may not get it right every time, but my personal commitment to you is that I will strive to sit with you when your world is not right. And I will strive to tell you the truth in a loving and gentle way, even when it's a truth that you might not want to hear. And I will strive to tell you the truth in an encouraging, loving, and gentle way, even when it's a truth that you might not yet be willing to believe that you have been called to something greater. You have been called to something higher. And with God's help, it is possible for you. There's gonna be a slide on the screen behind me. It's got a QR code where you can sign up to be a part of a small group. A couple words about that. We're in a process in a growth season, and so there are three options for you if you scan this QR code right now. There's a small group that meets on Sundays after worship. There's a small group that meets on Tuesday nights, and there is a group that signs you up to be on a waiting list if neither of those days work for your schedule. And if you sign up for the waiting list, I'll reach out to you, I'll get your schedule, and as we build critical mass, we have leaders that are waiting in the wings to be planted, to plant new small groups where you can experience this kind of encouragement. If you sign up for one of the two that are currently going and you show up this week, um, it's not a lifelong commitment. You can show up and maybe you think, hey, this isn't for me or this isn't for me right now. My season of life isn't going to allow for me to gauge in this way, and that's okay. You can show up, you can not come back ever, or you can not come back for a while and come back another time when it makes more sense for you and your family. Uh, both of the groups that we have right now have childcare available if that's something that you need. Um, here's what I want you to take away. I know that the life you're living as a follower of Jesus is hard. And I know from personal experience that this kind of truth-telling encouragement is what we need to persevere. And you're invited to come and experience it. It's not gonna be perfect, but you're invited. You're invited. I'd love to see you in my small group. I'd love to see you in the other small group. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful, life-changing time, and I'm convinced that for me, I can't follow Jesus well without it. So I hope you'll give it a try. Uh, th this same link is also on our webpage. You can pull it up, covenantconnects.life. Uh, let's pray together as the band comes up for more worship.
God, we love you. We trust you. Thank you that Jesus models encouragement in this way. Jesus, that you're not afraid of our world when things in our world just aren't right. And that we don't have to be afraid that that you won't love us anymore or something if you tell us a truth that's hard to hear. And thank you that you are the one who makes it possible for us to fulfill this higher calling when you tell us the truth that we might not yet be willing to believe. Help us, God. Help us to be agents of offering this type of encouragement to one another. Help us be agents uh, to receive this type of encouragement as we grow in our journey of following you as a disciple, of learning to be like you in this world, to love the lost, the last, and the least of these. And God, as we continue into a time of offering, we pray over the gifts that you would multiply them to bear fruit in your kingdom. And we pray over the givers that you would bless them with the freedom that comes from giving things away in a generous spirit. We love you, God. We trust you. Amen.